and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents <laughs> who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams and teens mm-hmm. at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. <laughs> Jewel. Putting a little English on it. Uh, putting a little putting a little juice, you know, like Lizzo. It's putting all about l- that juice. Blame it on my juice. Blame it on my juice. <laughs> I just took a DNA test. Turns out I'm 100% that bitch. Could I have said that any whiter? Could I? <laughs> um, t- hey, girl, hey, girl. I just took a DNA test. <laughs> and it turns out. <laughs> oh, Lord. Forgive us, Lizzo. We've done you dirty. Um, so, <laughs> we, uh, so my topic today, uh-huh. bringing to you, our audience, uh, comes from uh, a deep need because... Julie and I went um, on a little road trip a couple weekends ago to Bristol, PA, beautiful, sunny Bristol, PA, to visit our friend Maggie. Hey, Maggie, and her husband, Justin. Hey, Justin. And they're two very adorable babies. Oh, my God. Yes. Uh, and on our way there, no, on our way back, mm-hmm. we're listening to some podcasts. And uh, we, at first, we were listening to uh, My Brother, My Brother and Me, and they were talking about caves, and suddenly we saw a billboard for caves. Yeah. We're like, huh, that's weird. That's weird. Isn't that funny? Isn't that such a strange thing? And then we were listening to um, AJ's podcast, Be My Guest, and uh, we drove by a big warehouse that said AJ's. And we were like, huh, that's weird. Huh. And then there was a third thing, and I can't remember what it was. Oh, um, somebody else was talking about different kinds of coffee or something. And then as we were driving by a rest stop, it was like, coffee break ahead. And we were just like, we were like, what's going on? So then we were trying to think of um, the answer to a question that AJ had asked. (laughs) And the answer was some song. Oh, it was the um, singer of a song. Yeah. And Julia said, we paused it and we were chatting. And Julia said, oh, oh, school's out. Um, who's the guy, who's the person who sings School's Out? So I Googled it and I, um, Julie almost ran off the road because I think I, I gasped like someone had punctured both my lungs. I was like, oh my God, it's Alice Cooper. Alice Cooper sings School's Out. And I pointed at the sky and I shouted, leave us alone. Y'all, Alice Cooper has been haunting us. Haunting us. I'm pretty sure he's not dead yet. No. But he's... <laughs> He comes across our lives easily once a week. At easily this point. once a week, sometimes twice a week, especially this summer. We had that series of like three podcasts in a row where we brought up Alice Cooper. Yeah. And then we like read an article online, turned out Alice Cooper did this thing. Yeah. And then like, somebody on Twitter was like, you just might as well do an episode on Alice Cooper. And we were like, yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah. And then when we were on this road trip and Alice Cooper was the answer to that thing that I asked Lauren, we knew. It was time. It was time to appease, <laughs> appease our our appease horrible the hard god. Rock gods. <laughs> appease him. So my title of my episode today is called "Free Me from This Curse," Alice Cooper. I brush my hair, brush my teeth. I go to church, and I'm a really nice guy. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> uh, please be gentle with us, Mister Alice Cooper. Okay. Cooper was born Vincent Damon. Fernier on February 4th, 1948 in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, he was the son of Ether Maroney Fernier. 
That's his dad's name. And his wife, Ella May. His father was an evangelist in the Church of Jesus Christ, headquartered in Monongahela, Pennsylvania. Mon- Monongahela. Mon- Monongahela. Um, apparently that is uh, an offshoot of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's called Bicker Tonight. Just FYI. Um, Cooper was active in his church in the ages of 11 and 12, and following a series of childhood illnesses, he moved with his family to Phoenix, Arizona, where he attended Cortez High School. And in his high school yearbook, his ambition was to be, quote, a million record seller. And because he uh, knows all and sees all, he went on to do that. So in 1964, 16-year-old Furnier was eager to participate in the local annual Cortez High School Letterman's Talent Show, so he gathered four fellow cross-country teammates to form a group for the show. These people were Glenn Buxton, Dennis Dunaway, John Tatum, and John Spear. They named themselves the Earwigs. Oh, is that cute? Uh, they dressed up in costumes and wigs to resemble the Beatles and performed several parodies of Beatles songs with the lyrics <laughs> modified to refer to the track team uh, in their rendition of Please Please Me. For example, the line last night I said these words to my girl was replaced with last night I ran four laps for my coach. Isn't that just the most pure <laughs> and precious thing you've ever heard? Um, of the group, only Buxton knew how to play an instrument, the guitar. Uh, so Buxton played guitar while the rest mimed on their instruments. The group got an overwhelming response from the audience and won the talent show. Oh, good. Isn't that sweet? And as a result of their positive experience, the group decided to try to turn into a real band, which in the 60s is apparently all you That's needed. That's all you needed That's to do. That's all you needed. Yep, there's four of us. <laughs> One of us knows how to play the guitar. Done. <laughs> Moving to Los Angeles. So they acquired musical instruments from a local pawn shop and proceeded to learn how to play them with Buxton doing most of the teaching as well as much of the early songwriting. This poor guy. Ugh. So they soon renamed themselves the Spiders featuring Furnier on vocals. So in 66, the Spiders graduated from Cortez High School and the band released their second single, which was called Don't Blow Your Mind, an original composition which became a local number one hit, which of course, because it was the 60s and four high school kids who only like one fourth of them knows how to play an instrument become local celebrities. Uh, So by 1967, the band had begun to make regular road trips to Los Angeles to play shows. And they soon renamed themselves Naz and released the single wonder who's loving her now Naz with two Z's and a Z Z. By the end of the year, the band had relocated to Los Angeles. So in 1968, the band learned that Todd Rundgren also had a band called Naz and found themselves in need of another stage name. So Furnier also believed that the group needed a gimmick to succeed and that other bands were not exploiting the showmanship potential of the stage. Okay. So they chose the name Alice Cooper largely because it sounded innocuous and wholesome in humorous contrast to the band's image and music. Uh, The legend that the name came from a session with a Ouija board was later discredited. Um, apparently there was this, because of the way that Alice Cooper, the band kind of got to be famous. Mm-hmm. The idea was that they were like dabbling with the occult and some ghost oh, named Alice okay. Cooper had come through and was like, name your band after me. And they were like, all right. And then uh, I shall be at peace. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but it turns out that wasn't true. Although that's a great, great, great story. Uh, In 1975, Furnier adopted the stage name as his own to avoid legal complications over ownership of the band's name. So Furnier, now known as Alice Cooper, later stated that the name change was one of his most important and successful career moves. So from here on out, we'll call Vincent Furnier 
Alice Cooper. Okay. Because, and when I refer to the band, I will call it Alice Cooper Band. Okay. Because during this time, they were one and the same. Alice Cooper the band, Alice Cooper the human person. Okay. Nonetheless, at the time, Cooper and his band realized that the concept of a male playing the role of a villain, a woman killer, in tattered women's clothing and wearing makeup would have the potential to cause considerable social controversy and grab headlines. In 2007, in his book, Alice Cooper, Golf Monster, Cooper stated that his look was inspired in part by film. Golf monster? Golf monster. Um, You'll find out later that Alice Cooper is just a golf fiend. Ooh, he loves golf. He loves it. He has a great handicap, too, but we'll get there. Um, One of the band's all-time favorite movies was Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, starring Betty Davis. Uh, Quote, in the movie, Betty wears disgusting uh, caked eye makeup smeared on her face and underneath her eyes with deep, dark black eyeliner, he said. Another movie the band watched over and over was Barbarella. Okay. Um, So you're getting a little bit of a sense of they really loved camp. Camp. Camp for camp's sake. Okay. Uh, Alice said later, when I saw Anita Pallenberg playing the great tyrant in that movie in 1968, wearing long black leather gloves with switchblades coming out of them, I thought that's what Alice should look like that. And a little bit of Emma Peel from the Avengers. Uh, so the classic Alice Cooper group lineup consisted of Furnier, lead guitarist, Glenn Buxton, rhythm guitarist, Michael Bruce, bassist, Dennis Dunaway and drummer, Neil Smith, with the exception of Smith who graduated from Camelback high school. All of the band members were on the Cortez high school cross country team. And many of Cooper's stage effects were inspired by the cross country coach. <laughs> Cooper Buxton and Dunaway were also art students and their admiration for the works of surrealist artists, such as Salvador Dali would further inspire their future stage antics. Keep Salvador Dali in mind. Mm, One night after an unsuccessful gig at the Cheetah Club in Venice, California, where the band emptied the entire room of patrons after playing just 10 minutes, they were approached and enlisted by music manager Shep Gordon, who saw the band's negative impact that night as a force that could be turned into a more productive direction. Shep then arranged an audition for the band with composer and renowned record producer Frank Zappa, who was looking to sign bizarre music acts to his new record label, Straight Records, an ironic name. <laughs> for the audition, Zappa told them to come to his house at seven o'clock. The band mistakenly assumed he meant seven o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Why? <laughs> it's holly weird, am I right? Yeah, I know. Being woken up by a band willing to play that particular brand of psychedelic rock at seven in the morning impressed Zappa enough for him to sign them to a three album deal. <laughs> Again, in the seventies, there were fewer people. Mm, anything could happen. Anything could happen. Another Zappa-signed act, the all-female GTOs, who liked to dress the Cooper boys up like full-size Barbie dolls, played a major role in developing the band's early onstage look. So, uh, Cooper, the band's first album, Pretties for You, which was released in 1969, was eclectic and featured an experimental presentation of their songs in a psychedelic context. So, very 1969. Mm-hmm. Um, Alice Cooper's shock rock reputation apparently developed almost by accident at first. Um, An unrehearsed stage routine involving Cooper, a feather pillow, and a live chicken garnered attention from the press. The band decided to capitalize on the tabloid sensationalism, creating in the process a new subgenre, shock rock. Are you going to tell me about what happened? I'm going to tell you. So Cooper, the man, claims that the infamous chicken incident at the Toronto Rock and Roll Revival concert in September 1969 was an accident. A chicken somehow made its way onto the stage into the feathers of a feather pillow they would open during Cooper's performance. And not having any experience around farm animals, living in Detroit, 
Cooper presumed that, because the chicken had wings, it would be able to fly. He picked it up and threw it out over the crowd, expecting it to fly away. The chicken instead plummeted into the first few rows occupied by wheelchair users, who reportedly proceeded to tear the bird to pieces. What? Yes. So the next day, the incident made the front page of national newspapers and Zappa phoned Cooper and asked if the story, which reported that he had bitten off the chicken's head and drunk its blood on stage, was true. Uh, Cooper denied the rumor, whereupon Zappa told him, quote, well, whatever you do, don't tell anyone you didn't do it. So that's how he gained a reputation of being kind of like horror, shock rock, like over the top. He would wear makeup and women's clothing and look like just like a high camp weirdo um, doing crazy things on stage. But he did not bite the head off a chicken. What were they doing with a feather pillow on stage? I don't know. There's a lot of like the information that I got. And I didn't watch any videos because who's got the time? Um, But it was it's like the information that I got was like uh, a feather pillow, a plastic uh, snake. Um, three bars of Milky Ways. Like, it was just like, what? What is he even doing on stage with these things? One of those cans of fake peanut brittle. Yeah. (laughs) What? What is he doing? Um, So despite the publicity from the chicken incident, the band's second album called Easy Action failed to dent the Billboard Top 100. Uh, Around this time, fed up with Californians' indifference to their act, they relocated to Pontiac, Michigan, where their bizarre stage act was much better received by Midwestern crowds accustomed to the proto-punk styles of local bands such as the Stooges and the MC5. Um, Despite this, Cooper still managed to receive a cream pie in the face when performing at the Cincinnati Pop Festival, um, which apparently was a negative thing. (laughs) That's not good. Uh, Michigan would remain their city home base until 1972. Um, L.A. just didn't get it, Cooper stated. They were all on the wrong drug for us. They were on acid and we were basically drinking beer. We fit much more in Detroit than we did anywhere else. So Alice Cooper, the band, appeared at the Woodstock-esque Strawberry Fields Festival near Toronto, Ontario in August 1970. And the band's mix of glam and increasingly violent stage theatrics stood out in stark contrast to the bearded, denim-clad hippie bands of the time. Mm. As Cooper himself stated, we were into fun, sex, death, and money when everybody else was into peace and love. We wanted to see what was next. It turned out we were next, and we drove a stake through the heart of the love generation. I know, right? So in the autumn of 1970, Alice Cooper Band recorded their third album, Love It to Death. Uh, The group's 1971 tour featured a stage show involving mock fights and gothic torture modes being imposed on Cooper the Man, climaxing in a stage execution by electric chair, with the band sporting tight sequin color contrast and glam rock style costumes made by prominent rock fashion designer Cindy Dunaway, who was the sister of the band member Neil Smith and wife of band member Dennis Dunaway. So they kept it all in the family. Oh, yeah. Uh, Cooper's androgynous stage role had developed to present a villainous side, portraying a potential threat to modern society. The success of the band's single and album in their tour of 1971, which included their first tour of Europe, audience members reportedly included Elton John and a pre-Ziggy David Bowie. Uh, It provided enough encouragement for Warner Brothers to offer the band a new multi-album contract. Okay. So their follow-up album called Killer, released in 1971, expanded on the villainous side of Cooper's androgynous stage role with its music becoming the soundtrack to the group's morality-based stage show, which by then uh, 
featured a boa constrictor hugging Cooper on stage, uh, the murderous axe chopping of bloodied baby dolls, and an execution by hanging at the gallows. And in January 1972, Cooper was again asked about his peculiar name and told talk show hostess Dinah Shore that he took the name from a Mayberry RFD character, which again wasn't true. They just picked it out of nowhere. (laughs) Um, so the summer of 1972 saw the release of the single "Schools Out," which is probably the song uh, I know yes. him. We know that song, for. and the song that tipped us out. That that was the song that he told us <laughs> through our brains that we needed to do this t- this episode on him. Uh, so it went to the top ten in the U.S. and to number one in the U.K. and remains a staple on classic rock radio to this day, as you know. Uh, the album also entitled Schools Out, reached number two on the U.S. charts and sold over a million copies. So his high school prediction came true. He did it. The band relocated to their new mansion in Greenwich, Connecticut. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Greenwich. Yeah, so moving on up. Uh, With Cooper's onstage androgynous persona completely replaced with brattiness and machismo, The band solidified their success with subsequent tours in the United States and Europe and won over devoted fans in droves while at the same time horrifying parents and outraging the social establishment. In the United Kingdom, Mary Whitehouse, a Christian morality campaigner, persuaded the BBC to ban the video for Schools Out, although Whitehouse's campaign did not prevent the single also reaching number one in the UK. And Cooper sent her a bunch of flowers and gratitude for the publicity. (laughs) Meanwhile, British Labour MP Leo Abbs petitioned Home Secretary Reginald Maudling, which is oh, such what a British, a British name. name. Reginald Maudling. It is I, Reginald, Reginald Maudling, the Home Secretary, uh, to have the group banned altogether from performing in the country. Uh, they were unsuccessful. So in February 1973, uh, Billion Dollar Babies uh, was released worldwide and became the band's most commercially successful album, reaching number one in both the US and the UK. Mm. Um, elected, which is a song, a late 1972 top 10 UK hit from the album, which inspired one of the f- first MTV style storyline promo videos ever made for a song, which was three years before Queen's promotional video for Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh. Was followed by two more UK top 10 singles, Hello Hooray and No More Mr. Nice Guy, which is another song that I know him from. Um, the latter of which was the last UK single from the album, and it reached number 25 in the US. Uh, Their 1973 U.S. tour broke box office records previously set by the Rolling Stones and raised rock theatrics to new heights. The multi-level stage show by then featured numerous special effects, including billion-dollar bills, decapitated baby dolls and mannequins, a dental psychosis scene complete with dancing teeth, and the ultimate execution prop and highlight of the show, the guillotine. Uh, The guillotine and other stage effects were designed for the band by magician James Randi, who appeared on stage during some of the shows as the executioner. So the Alice Cooper band had now reached its peak and was among the most visible and successful acts in the industry. So the guillotine trick, like Alice is like me, like stalking around the stage and he's covered in blood and blah, blah, blah. And then he puts his head in the guillotine and the executioner like throws the switch. I don't know. It's a cord. I don't know. I don't pulley. Pulley. It's a pulley system. Uh, Anyway. And his, and it chops his head off and his head (laughs) falls into a basket and it's all like a, yeah, it's all a visual effect. Um, but I can see how it would be like absolutely horrifying because so it was like a real show. Oh, it was you like, were this wasn't just oh, I hope they dance around and sing that song. I like no, this is I wonder what hellscape <laughs> yes. they're going to they're going to they're going to bring out onto the onto yes. the stage tonight that you will uh, that they will unleash on our eyeballs tonight. Yeah, exactly. So wow. I mean, it made them 
God, a lot of money. So beneath the surface, however, here we go. Mm. The repetitive scheduling of recording and touring had begun to take its toll on the band. So this is in the behind the music. This is this is what happens just before the commercial break, about halfway through. Okay. Um, when the voice gets deeper mm. and slower, the picture like they zoom in slowly. Yes. Yeah, and it turns all of a sudden turns black and white. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, man, that was a great show. Anyway, in the early 70s, a story was widely reported that Leave It to Beaver star Ken Osmond had become rock star Alice Cooper. This was a very common, this was like all over the place. According to Cooper the Man, uh, the rumor began when a college newspaper editor asked him what kind of child he was, to which Cooper replied, I was obnoxious, disgusting, a real Eddie Haskell referring to the fictional character Osmond portrayed. However, the editor ended up reporting that Cooper was the real Haskell. So Cooper would later tell the New Times, quote, it was the biggest rumor that ever came out about me. Finally, I got a T-shirt that said, no, I am not Eddie Haskell, but people still believed it. It's like 20 years later, the rumor that the one kid from the Wonder Years was Marilyn Manson. Yeah, that was that's another thing. Like people just it just gets spread around and no matter how many times they deny it. Yeah, it's weird. Um, So during this time, Cooper relocated back to Los Angeles and started appearing regularly on television shows such as the Hollywood Squares. Uh, on March 5th, 1974, Cooper appeared on episode three of the Snoop Sisters playing a satanic cult singer. The Snoop Sisters? Yeah, I don't know. I guess it's, um, I think it was a uh, a variety show, a 70s variety show. You know, there's a ton of those. Sounds like a good mystery show. Oh, the Snoop, We're the Sisters. Snoop Sisters. Oh, maybe. I don't know. I'll have to look it up. Um, stay tuned, everybody. Uh, in 1975, Alice Cooper returned as a solo artist with the release of Welcome to My Nightmare. So that was Alice Cooper, the man's first single solo album. Alice Cooper solo. Yep. Welcome to My Nightmare. Uh, to avoid legal complications over ownership of the group name Alice Cooper had by then become the singer's new legal name. Okay. So Alice Cooper is Alice Cooper on his like driver's social license. security card. Yeah. Um, The success of Welcome to My Nightmare marked the final breakup of the original members of the band. And the album was released in March of that year and became a top 10 hit for Cooper. Uh, It was a concept album that was based on the nightmare of a child named Steven, featuring narration by classic horror movie film star Vincent Price and serving as the soundtrack to Cooper's new stage show, which now showcased more theatrics than ever, including an eight foot tall furry cyclops, which Cooper decapitated and killed. Now this is starting to sound a little like this is spinal tap to me. So now in, in reading this and doing my research and stuff, everything like from the beginning with Alice Cooper is totally tongue in cheek. Like he, he clearly really loved vaudeville. He loved camp. They all did. Um, so it seemed like everything that he was doing was with like kind of a wink. Yeah. And it was supposed to be kind of, at the end of the day, like funny. Yeah. Funny and weird and like to get attention. So vaudeville comes up a little bit later, but like he has such a, I don't know. It's so strange. Like you don't think of like silliness and vaudeville and camp being really a part of like grungy rock and roll. Mm -hmm. You see it in like glam rock and that kind of thing. But for him, it was, this is just fun. Like he just loved being a, giant weirdo goofball yeah. on stage and wearing makeup and women's clothing. Like he just loved it. So, um, also one of the reasons why I like him so much. So I love you, Alice Cooper. We love you. Uh, fo- following the 1976 U S number 12 ballad hit. I never cry. Uh, two albums, Alice Cooper goes to hell and lace and whiskey. 
and the 1977 U.S. number nine ballad hit You and Me, it became clear from many performances during his 1977 U.S. tour that Cooper was in dire need of help with his alcoholism. Uh. At his alcoholic peak, it was rumored that Cooper was consuming up to two cases of Budweiser and a bottle of whiskey a day. Which, just in sheer volume of liquid, seems impossible. He must have been peeing constantly. (laughs) Um, So anyway, following the tour, Cooper had himself hospitalized in a sanitarium for treatment. And in 1978, a sobered Cooper used his experience in the sanitarium as the inspiration for his semi-autobiographical album called From the Inside, uh, which he co-wrote with Bernie Taupin, which is uh, Elton John's writing buddy. See, I was just going to say, he checked himself into the thing, and then yep. he wrote an autobiographical album. That sounds just like Elton John. Well, Bernie Taupin helped him. So, it spawned yet another U.S. Top 20 hit ballad called How You Gonna See Me Now, and the subsequent tour stage show was based inside an asylum and was filmed for Cooper's first home video release called The Strange Case of Alice Cooper in 1979. So, around this time, Cooper performed Welcome to My Nightmare, You and Me, and School's Out on The Muppet Show. And this is episode 307, <laughs> if you really want to know, on March 28th, 1978. And uh, he played one of the devil's henchmen trying to dupe Kermit, Gonzo, and Miss Piggy into selling their souls. <gasps> he also appeared in an against typecasting role as a piano playing disco waiter in Mae West's final film, Sextet, and as a villain in the film Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Uh, Cooper also led celebrities in raising money to remodel the famous Hollywood sign in Los Angeles, California, which you mentioned in a previous episode. Uh, Cooper himself contributed over $27,000 to the project, buying an O in the sign in memory of close friend and comedian Groucho Marx. Uh, In 1979, Alice also guest starred on good friend Soupy Sales' show, Lunch with Soupy Sales, and was hit in the face with a pie as part of the show. When asked about his experience, Alice had this to say about his pale. Being from Detroit, I came home every day and watched Soupy at lunch, which was lunch with Soupy Sales. One of the greatest moments of my life was getting pie-faced by Soupy. He was one of my all-time heroes. <laughs> I know, it's so, it's like quite precious. So Cooper's albums from the beginning of the 1980s have been referred by Cooper as his blackout albums because he cannot remember recording them. <laughs> Owing to the influence of illicit substances. Uh, flush the fashion, special forces, zipper catches skin, and Oof. yeah, and Dada saw a gradual commercial decline. Those are the album titles, uh, with the last two not denting the Billboard Top 200. In mid 1983, after the recording of Dada, Cooper was hospitalized for alcoholism again and cirrhosis of the liver, and Cooper was finally stable and sober, and has remained sober since then. So, in 1986, Alice Cooper officially returned to the music industry with the album Constrictor, and the album spawned the hits He's Back, The Man Behind the Mask, uh, which was the theme song for the movie Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives, and in the video for the song, Cooper was given a cameo role as a deranged psychiatrist. Uh, Also, the fan favorite Teenage Frankenstein. Uh, The Constrictor album was followed by Raise Your Fist and Yell in 1987, and the subsequent tour, which was heavily inspired by the slasher horror movies of the time, such as Friday the 13th series and A Nightmare on Elm Street, served up a shocking spectacle similar to its predecessor and courted the kind of controversy, especially in Europe, that recalled the public outrage caused by Cooper's public performances in America in the early 70s. So in Britain, Labour MP David Blunkett, David Blunkett, I'm get, a Labour MP. Get original mondling on the telly. <laughs> get over here. Uh, he called for the show to be banned, saying, I'm horrified by his behaviour. It goes beyond the bounds of entertainment. 
I can't imagine he sounds like that. I'm sure he has like a very Time posh accent. Time for a spot of tea. Ah, rock core, blimey. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry, England. Um, <laughs> the controversy, or the controversy, uh, spilled over into the German segment of the tour with the German government actually succeeding in having some of the gorier segments of the performance removed. The Germans? I know, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> It was all- <laughs> it's too gory for the Germans. When it's too gory for the Germans, you know you got to pull back Tone a little it bit. Tone it down a yeah. little. Right? <laughs> um, so it was also during the London leg of the tour that Cooper met with a near fatal accident during <gasps> rehearsal of the hanging execution sequence that occurs at the end of the show. Oh, he also used to pretend to hang himself. Um, but apparently like the, uh, the safety line <gasps> snapped oh. and he actually like was hanging. And they for, were like... like- a- Oh, it looks you so realistic. You did a great job, Alice. Yeah, and he keep ne- up the good work. And then he nearly severed his spine. Oh my god! So in 1987, Cooper made a brief appearance as a vagrant in the horror movie *Prince of Darkness*, directed by John Carpenter. And his role had no lines and consisted of generally menacing the protagonists before eventually impaling one of them with a bicycle frame. So there you go. Jeez, I know. <laughs> In 1987, and this is, this just really, I mean, it really fits with his whole mm, aesthetic. Okay. In 1987, Cooper also appeared at WrestleMania 3, escorting wrestler Jake the Snake Roberts to the ring for his match against the Honky Tonk Man. I have never heard of this person. We should ask the Triviality Boys. <laughs> uh, after the match was over, Roberts lost. Cooper got involved and threw Jake's snake, Damien, at Honky's manager, Jimmy Hart. He threw the snake at Jimmy Hart. Alice Cooper threw a snake. (laughs) So Jake considered the involvement of Cooper to be an honor as he had idolized Cooper in his youth and was still a huge fan. Uh, On April 7th, 1988, Cooper nearly died of asphyxiation after a safety (gasps) rope broke during his rehearsal concert wherein he pretended to hang himself, a stunt he would often perform during live concerts. So this happened the second time. Oh my gosh. In 1991, Cooper released his 19th studio album, Hey Stupid, with two (laughs) O's, with two O's, S-T-O-O-P-I-D. Yeah. He's like, I'm running out of ideas. Oh, hey, stupid. Uh, it featured several notable rock musicians guesting on the record. Uh, it wasn't popular, you know, because of grunge. Mm. So uh, during the early 1990s, Cooper guested on records by the most successful bands of the time, such as the Guns N' Roses album Use Your Illusion 1, on which he shared vocal duties with Axl Rose on the track The Garden. He also had a brief appearance as the abusive stepfather of Freddy Krueger in the Nightmare on Elm Street film Freddy's Dead, colon, The Final Nightmare, which was 1991. Cooper also made a cameo appearance in the 1992 comedy film Wayne's World. (laughs) He is the subject of the infamous, we're not worthy, we're not worthy. So he is the, he is the one, he is the one they are not worthy of. Wow. Yeah. It has been so long since I've seen Wayne's I've World. never seen it. I know. I mean, I'm not surprised. No, I mean, who's surprised? No one. Uh, so yeah, so that's a nice little bit of trivia. If you don't remember, it's Alice Cooper that they are very excited about. Uh, in 1994, Cooper released The Last Temptation, his first concept album since Dada. The album deals with issues of faith, temptation, alienation, and the frustrations of modern life, and has been described as a young man struggled to see the truth through the distractions of the sideshow of the modern world. Concurrent with the release of The Last Temptation was a three-part comic book series written by Neil Gaiman, fleshing out the album's story. This guy knows and loves, and it collaborates with literally everybody. everybody. Um, 
So this was to be Cooper's last studio release for six years, though during this period, the live album A Fistful of Alice was released. I know. And in 1997, he lent his voice to the intro track of Insane Clown Posse's The Great Malenko. He'll just do whatever. Um, Also in 1996, Cooper sang the role of Herod on the London cast recording of the musical Jesus Christ Superstar. So um, in 1986, Megadeth opened for Cooper on his U.S. Constrictor tour. And after noticing the abuse of alcohol and other drugs in the band, Cooper personally approached the band members to try to help them control their abuse. And he has stayed close to frontman Dave Mustaine, who considers Cooper to be his godfather. Is that I'm Alice Cooper. <laughs> I gave him a British accent. Yeah. Sorry. I'm Alice Cooper, and I'm here to save you. <laughs> yes. That's what he said and, to and them. Dave Mustaine was like, please. Thank you, Alice. Cooper. Uh, Since overcoming his own addiction to alcohol in the mid-1980s, Cooper has continued to help and counsel other rock musicians with addiction problems. In recognition of the work he has done in helping other addicts in the recovery process, Cooper received the 2008 Stevie Ray Vaughan Award. Isn't that lovely? So during this period, uh, in the early 2000s, we'll say, um, he was also recognized and awarded in various ways. He received a Rock Immortal Award at the 2007 Scream Awards. Uh, he was given a star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 2003. In May 2004, he received an honorary doctoral degree from Grand Canyon University. That sounds real. I know, right? Uh, in May 2006, he was given the key to the city of Alice, North Dakota. He won the Living Legend Award at the 2006 Classic Rock Roll of Honor Awards event. And he won the 2007 Mojo Music Magazine Hero Award. In June 2005, Alice Cooper was inducted into the Michigan Rock and Roll Legends Hall of Fame. Isn't that lovely? Um, Cooper's radio show, Nights with Alice Cooper, began airing on January 26th, 2004 in several U.S. cities. The program showcases classic rock Cooper's personal stories about his life as a rock icon in interviews with prominent rock artists. The show is broadcast on nearly 100 stations in the U.S. and Canada and has also been broadcast all over the world. It's still going strong. <laughs> and a local affiliate, just FYI, everyone, is WGRF 96.9 Buffalo. Tune in. Tune in to, uh, I don't know what time, but I'm sure you can find out from the, from the internet. Late uh, night. Nights with Alice Cooper. Ooh. Sorry, I can't come to that party. I have to spend my night. My night with, with Alice, Alice Cooper. Cooper. Yeah. Uh, in January 2010, it was announced that Alice would be touring with Rob Zombie on the Gruesome Twosome Tour. I love that so much. In May 2010, Cooper made an appearance during the beginning of the season finale of the reality show American Idol, in which he sang School's Out. Uh, On December 15th, 2010, it was announced Cooper and his former band would be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The official Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony took place March 14th, 2011, where Cooper was inducted by fellow horror rocker Rob Zombie. Uh, Original members Bruce, Cooper, Dunaway, and Smith all made brief acceptance speeches and performed I'm 18 and School's Out live together, with Steve Hunter filling in for the late Glenn Buxton because Glenn Buxton had died. Uh, Alice showed up for the event wearing a presumably fake blood spattered shirt and had a live albino Burmese python wrapped around his neck. So at no point in Alice Cooper's life has anyone been like, um, I'm sorry, Alice, are you, are you doing okay? Is this, I just wanted to make sure that this is what you wanted to be wearing to this. Uh, I I guess, you know, by then he's what he's in his early sixties at this point. Yeah, so he can do whatever he wants, I guess. 
Um, Cooper told Rolling Stone magazine that he was elated by the news and that the nomination had been made for the original band as we all did go to the same high school together and we were all on the track team. And it was pretty cool that guys that knew each other before the band ended up going that far. So did they stay friends? It oh, seemed yeah. like, okay. Yeah. It was just like, eh, the, the, uh, the quote that I read was like, we we were together for 10 years and we got everything we could get out of each other. And I think we wanted to move on and we've been together since we were like 16. Mm-hmm. So we all, then they all did their own like, okay, stuff. So it seems that there is literally no one who dislikes Alice okay. Cooper. Um, everyone loves him. Uh, so the chicken lobby, maybe the chip, maybe Big the chicken, chicken lobby doesn't love him. Um, oh, actually, uh, I think, well, I'll mention it. Okay. Hold on. Um, Cooper was the subject of Super Duper Alice Cooper, a biographical documentary film, and the film won a Canadian Screen Award for Best Feature Length Documentary at the third Canadian Screen Awards in 2015. And a Julia Award for Best Title of a Documentary. Yeah, Super Duper Alice Cooper. It's great. So in 2015, Cooper premiered Hollywood Vampires, a supergroup featuring Johnny Depp and Joe Perry with a new studio album of rock covers featuring many guest artists, including Paul McCartney and live dates at LA's Roxy Theater and at Brazil's Rock and Rio Festival in September. Um, Hollywood Vampires is the name of the band, but the Hollywood Vampires was also a drinking group that he had like, like it was a loose like group of dudes who would drink together and they like called themselves the Hollywood vampires because they would be up late at night, like drinking into the wee hours. Um, so in 2016, Cooper made headlines again as he resumed his running gag of campaigning for the U S (laughs) presidency. And on Easter Sunday, 2018, Cooper performed as King Herod in NBC's live performance of Andrew Lloyd Webber's Jesus Christ superstar reviews were positive. My coworker and friend Carrie did not like it, but you know, to each their own. Uh, the New York Times critic Noel Murray praising Alice Cooper's magnificent scenery-chewing performance as a startling moment of clarity, and Lorraine Alley of the Los Angeles Times describing his performance as weird, yes, but also perfect in a campy, dramatic, and evil billion-dollar babies kind of way. Cooper's part was small but indelible. Um, unlikely non-musician fans of Cooper have included Groucho Marx and Mae West, as mentioned before, who both reportedly saw the early shows as a form of vaudeville review. Okay. An artist, Salvador Dali, who on attending a show in 1973 described it as being surreal and made a hologram called First Cylindric Chromo Hologram Portrait of Alice Cooper's Brain. So Alice Cooper... The has- first one? <laughs> there's <laughs> more? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe there's more than one, yeah. So um, Alice Cooper has a Dali piece based on him. Wow. Yeah. Um, Cooper is a fan of the NHL's Arizona Coyotes, and on February 18th, 2012, the Coyotes gave away his bobblehead in a promotion for the first 10,000 fans for a game with the Dallas Stars. Cooper is a longtime baseball fan, supporting the Arizona Diamondbacks and the Detroit Tigers, so he splits his his affiliations. He has coached Little League baseball teams since his son played in the early 90s, and Cooper is also a fan of NBA basketball, supporting the Detroit Pistons. Um, Cooper has on several occasions credited golf with playing a major role in helping him overcome his addiction to alcohol and has even gone so far as to say that when he took up golf, it was a case of replacing one addiction with another. The importance that the game has had on his life is also reflected in the title to his 2007 autobiography. As I mentioned before, Alice Cooper, Golf Monster. Cooper, who has participated in a number of pro-am competition, plays the game six days a week off a handicap of four which apparently is very good. 
Did it help him stop drinking? Because he was like, okay, I'm not allowed to drink if I'm golfing. And then he realized that the games take approximately 11 <laughs> hours to play. And by the time that you're done, it's yeah. just time to go to bed. Yeah, that's probably it. I mean, that's he credits it with, you know, cleaning him up. Um, also, FYI, I didn't mention this yet. I thought I would have, but I think I it got accidentally edited out. Um, Alice Cooper is a born-again Christian and has been, which... Seems incongruous. Right. But has been since he uh, got sober. Okay. In uh, the, the 80s. In the 80s. Mm-hmm. So um, he credits that a lot with getting him sober as well. Well, that's good for him. Yeah. I mean, bless him. Literally. <laughs> um, Cooper is also a fan of The Simpsons and was asked to contribute a storyline for the September 2004 edition of Bongo Comics Bart Simpson's Treehouse of Horror, a special Monsters of Rock issue that also included stories plotted by Gene Simmons, Rob Zombie, and Pat Boone for some reason. Uh, uh, noted horror. Noted horror lover <laughs> Pat Boone. Uh Cooper contributed his likeness and over 700 voice lines to Alice Cooper's Nightmare Castle, a pinball machine released in 2018 by Spooky Pinball that also features 10 songs performed by Cooper. Only 500 machines were made. The review of the game from our engineer is, quote, it was hard, but also cool. (laughs) Yes. So stick that, keep that in mind. All right, let's talk briefly about his personal life. All right. (laughs) Cooper was briefly linked with actress Raquel Welch. Cooper then reportedly left Welch, however, to marry ballerina instructor and choreographer Cheryl Goddard, who performed in the Alice Cooper show from 1975 to 1982. They married on March 20th, 1976. And in November 1983, at the height of Cooper's alcoholism, Goddard filed for divorce. But by mid-1984, she and Cooper had reconciled. Uh, In a 2002 television interview, Cooper stated that he had never cheated on his wife the entire time that they were together. Wonderful. In the same interview, he also said that the secret to a lasting and successful relationship is to continue going out on dates with one's partner. Oh my God, can you imagine the Alice Cooper dating book? Oh my God, he would have such good... I mean, he's been with his wife for so long. Um (laughs) In a 2019 interview, Cooper said that he and his wife Cheryl have a death pact, wherein they will die at the same time, sparking a flurry of headlines. But Cooper clarified his comments telling USA Today, quote, what I was meaning was that because we're almost always together at home and on the road, that if something did happen to either of us, we'd most likely be together at the time. But neither of us have a, has a suicide pact. We have a life pact. They have three kids, two girls, and a boy. And Alice Cooper is just... The sweetest, loveliest man. You think he's still a Little League coach? Probably. Like 2019, Alice Cooper coaching Little League in Arizona. 2019, Alice Cooper plays golf six days a week and still tours. He is still touring. He said said at one point that if Mick Jagger, who is six years older than me, can still tour, that means when he retires, I have six more years and then I can retire. Wow. He's 72. He still dyes his hair jet black. He still puts on the makeup and the blood mm-hmm. and everything and goes out there and sings No More Mr. Nice Guy and people lose their shit. It's great. I love him and not just because he is haunting us. So there you go. A much needed episode on Alice Cooper. Super duper Alice Cooper. Super duper Alice Cooper. Super duper Alice Cooper. And Alice, if you're listening to this, I'm sure he's not. We love you. He could and be. Please, please leave us alone now. <laughs> Please let us live our but lives. Also, if you came here, we would, you know. 
Oh, we would. We'd give you a, a sticker for our podcast. Yes, and you know what? I bet he smells great. You know, it's always the incongruous people who smell amazing. You know. You know, I'm not sure I agree with you on that. Really, um, he's also, and you know, I I remember looking at him um, in a picture, and I was like, this guy's a paisan. Like, there's no way this guy is an Italian. It's true. Um, but he's not. He's like irish or whatever okay but he has like the same you know he's got that the the sad eyes and the big nose of you know of a fellow countryman of a fellow countryman but no it turns out so anyway my quiz tonight um is called <laughs> alice's and cooper's a quiz on famous alice's and historical occupational surnames question number one let's get this one out of the way Maybe our Alice Cooper picked that name subconsciously, since he had some problems with alcohol later in life. A Cooper was someone who made what? Question number two. Alice Walker, novelist, short story writer, poet, social activist, and the inventor of the term womanist, is best known for what novel, for which she won the National Book Award for Hardcover Fiction and the 1983 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction? Question number three. A little bird told me that Kevin Spacey's birth name was Kevin Fowler. Other than that, I can't think of another famous Fowler. What is the historical occupation associated with Fowler? Question number four. Alice Walton is the heir to the Walmart fortune and the second richest woman in the world with an estimated net worth of $45 billion. In the early 2000s, she courted controversy by purchasing numerous important works of American art to furnish her passion project, a cutting-edge art museum in Bentonville, Arkansas, with a sparkling reputation. What is the name of this museum? Question number five. Name this Alice. When her father took office following an assassination, an event that she greeted with, quote, sheer rapture, Alice became an instant celebrity and fashion icon at age 17. And at her social debut, she wore a gown of what was to be known forever afterwards as Alice Blue, sparking a color trend in women's clothing. Alice was known as a rule breaker in an era where women were under great pressure to conform. The American public noticed many of her exploits and the Journal des Debats in Paris noted that in 15 months, she had attended 407 dinners, 350 balls, and 300 parties. She smoked cigarettes in public, rode cars with men, stayed out late partying, kept a pet snake named Emily Spinach in the White House, and was seen placing bets with a bookie. Who is this Alice? Question number six. The surname Mahler is most associated with the Bohemian-Austrian composer and conductor Gustav Mahler, who made beautiful music but wasn't especially artistic. What profession is associated with the name Mahler? Question number seven. Lewis Carroll's character of Alice is one of the most enduring and beloved characters in fantasy children's literature. But how many books about Alice and her adventures in Wonderland did Carroll write? Question number eight. The last name of Fletcher might bring to mind the character of Jessica Fletcher from the eternal TV show Murder, She Wrote. But I'm not entirely sure if anyone in that series died from a crossbow. What occupation is associated with the name Fletcher? Question number nine. This YA phenomenon was published in 1971, purportedly a real diary of a deceased 15-year-old girl who descends into the world of drugs. It's now seen as anti-drug propaganda and a literary hoax, but it's been continuously in print since its publishing and was even adapted into a TV movie starring William Shatner. What is this book? And finally, question number 10. Blimey! The surname of Dauber was originally given to English workers who used what specific building material? 
We'll give you a minute to think about it. We'll be right back with answers. Great. Do it. Here we go. Question number one. Let's get this one out of the way. Maybe our Alice Cooper picked that name subconsciously because he had some problems with alcohol later in life. A Cooper was someone who made what? Barrels. Barrels. Uh, A Cooper is a person trained to make wooden casks, barrels, thats, buckets, tubs, troughs, and other staved containers from timber that was usually heated or steamed to make it pliable. Journeyman Coopers also traditionally make wooden implements such as rakes and wooden blade shovels. Um, The word is from the Middle Dutch or Middle German. There you go. Question number two. Alice Walker, novelist, short story writer, poet, social activist, and the inventor of the term womanist, is best known for what novel for which she won the National Book Award for Hardcover Fiction and the 1983 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction? The Color Purple. The Color Purple. She was the first black woman to win the prize, and the book was adapted into a 1985 film starring Oprah Winfrey, Whoopi Goldberg, and Danny Glover. Uh, It was made into a musical in 2005 with a revival in 2015 starring the incomparable Cynthia Erivo as Sully. And she performed a song on some late night show, and I was, again, I don't know what it is about musical songs. I think it, like, really really tickles the 13-year-old inside of me, and I just cried and cried. Her voice is so beautiful. Anyway, question number three. A little bird told me that Kevin Spacey's birth name was Kevin Fowler. Other than that, I can't think of another famous Fowler. What is the historical occupation associated with Fowler? Like a like a bird keeper? Like uh, I'll take it. A bird keeper. It's bird catching or bird hunting. Yeah. Um, it's an English and or Scots surname. Its origin is the old English fugalaire, an occupational name for a bird catcher or hunter of wild birds. Old English fugal or fugal means bird. It's kind of like a falconer too would be yeah. kind of the same. Yeah, something okay. like that. Uh, question number four. Alice Walton is the heir to the Walmart fortune and the second richest woman in the world with an estimated net worth of $45 billion. In the early 2000s, she courted controversy by purchasing numerous important works of American art to furnish her passion project, a cutting-edge art museum in Bentonville, Arkansas, with a sparkling reputation. What is the name of this museum? Crystal Bridges. Oh, Crystal Bridges. So controversial. Is that how they say it in Britain? No. So controversial. So in May 2005, the museum... Do you know about this? Tell me. Okay, I will. Uh, in May 2005, the museum purchased a coveted Asher B. Duran landscape entitled Kindred Spirits from the New York Public Library. So Kindred Spirits, it shows Asher B. Durand and another man, and they're like they're being very chummy at the edge of a beautiful cliff, and there's like a moon, and it's looking out over the Hudson Valley. Okay. And it is a 
it is a quintessential piece of Hudson Valley artwork. It depicts New York, early New York. It's a Hudson River School artist, the most famous Hudson River, one of the most famous Hudson River School artists. It was given to the New York Public Library by like a descendant of Asher B. Durand, like his daughter or something like mm-hmm. that. It's been with it with the New York Public Library for years and years and years. So they bought it. Okay. Crystal Bridges, Alice Walton specifically bought it for Crystal Bridges for $35 million in a blind auction. And the reason why was because the New York Public Library was teetering very close to financial yeah. ruin. So the thing that Alice Walton has been criticized of doing in the museum world is offering so much money like because she has so much money she can offer any amount of money more than any museum could ever dream of Mm -hmm. and because so many museums are having especially around that time 2008 early 2000s um they were having such a hard time with endowments and money and that kind of thing that she was making a lot of museums offers that they couldn't refuse so wow um so Crystal Bridges currently has an over $200 million endowment and can basically buy whatever it wants. The Gross Clinic, which is a a Philadelphia icon, um, so is a good example of her holding local art hostage. In 2006, the museum partnered with the National Gallery of Art, meaning Crystal Bridges partnered with the National Gallery of Art in an attempt to purchase Thomas Eakins's The Gross Clinic from Thomas Jefferson University because they owned it outright. Hmm. So under the terms of the agreement, the two museums agreed to pay a record $68 million, but the university gave Philadelphia 45 days to match the offer. So they were like, we will buy this for $68 million unless you can scrape up enough money and match the offer. Feels really weird. Yeah. The Philadelphia Museum of Art and the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts agreed to collectively match the offer and the painting remained in Philadelphia. Um, And the... But the purchase forced both museums to sell some of their best Eakins pieces, which is like ironic, including cowboy singing and the cello player. And uh, in April 2007, Crystal Bridges acquired another Eakins belonging to Thomas Jefferson University entitled Portrait of Professor Benjamin H. Rand for an estimated $20 million. So she has probably a good example from every state in the union um, because she can just buy it. The other thing is, is that Bentonville, Arkansas is kind of a economically depressed area. Mm -hmm. It's a state of the art museum. It's the first art museum to be established since 1974. Okay. And she, uh, she also, there's no, um, you don't have to pay to get in. It's free. Uh It's free for everybody. So on one hand, she's making very high end art accessible to a lot of people who wouldn't normally get to see it. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, she's basically like, <laughs> she's Carmen San Diegoing. She, yeah, she's Carmen San Diegoing all the best art in the United States. <laughs> so it's kind of crazy. Wow. Um, yeah. Uh, isn't it crazy? Yeah, she's kind of the worst and kind of the best at the same time. <laughs> um, question number five: Name this Alice. I will not go through the entire thing, but I will hit the high notes. When her father took office following the, an assassination, uh, Alice became an, an assassination or an assassination attempt. An assassination. So her father took office after an assassination. Someone else was assassinated. Exactly. Got you. She became an instant celebrity and fashion icon at age 17. Uh, she smoked cigarettes in public, rode in cars with men, stayed out late partying, kept a pet snake named Emily Spinach in the White House, and was seen placing bets with a bookie. Who is this Alice? I think she's a Roosevelt. It is Alice Roosevelt. Uh, she was the only child of Theodore and his first wife, Alice Hathaway Lee, who was the one who died in childbirth. Mm-hmm. Um, she was a real pistol, and I love her 
dearly. Uh, when it came time for the Roosevelt family to move out of the White House, Alice buried a voodoo doll of the new First Lady, Nellie Taft, in the front yard. <laughs> she is the originator of the quote, if you can't say something good about someone, sit right here by me. Uh. So Alice Roosevelt is the first person to say that. Um, when Not RuPaul. Yeah, not RuPaul. Uh, when Joe McCarthy had the balls to call her by her Christian name, she said, quote, Senator McCarthy, you are not going to call me Alice. The truck man, the trash man, and the policeman on my block may call me Alice, but you may not. Uh, she was also gorgeous, like the most beautiful thing. And she died at like 96. Oh. She was amazing. I might do an episode on her as a matter of fact. <laughs> Uh, question number six. The surname Mahler is most associated with the Bohemian Austrian composer and conductor Gustav Mahler, who made beautiful music, but wasn't especially artistic. What profession is associated with the name Mahler? Hmm. That's a good question. Uh, how about a house painter? That is, you know what? I'll take it. It's painter. <laughs> Particularly, specifically a stained glass painter. Oh, okay. And it's German in origin, as you may imagine. How about that? Um, you're doing great. Uh, question number seven. Lewis Carroll's character of Alice is one of the most enduring and beloved characters in fantasy children's literature, but how many books about Alice and her adventures in Wonderland did Carroll write? I think it's two. It is two. So it was Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, which was 1865, and Through the Looking Glass and What Alice Found There in 1871. Um, however, there have been numerous works based on the characters by other writers and artists and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Okay, question number eight. The last name of Fletcher might bring to mind the character of Jessica Fletcher from the eternal TV show Murder, She Wrote, but I'm not entirely sure if anyone in that series died from a crossbow. What occupation is associated with the name Fletcher? Arrow maker. Yes, aerosmith or seller of arrows. It is derived from the Middle English, Old English fulcher or Old French felcher, in turn from the Old French flèche, which is arrow. (laughs) Question number nine. I saw you like nodding as soon as I said it. Uh, the YA phenomenon, this YA phenomenon was published in 1971, purportedly a real diary of a deceased 15 year old girl who descends into the world of drugs. It's now seen as anti-drug propaganda and a literary hoax, but has been continuously in print since its publishing and was even adapted into a TV movie starring William Shatner. What is this book? I think this is go ask Alice. It is go ask Alice. Um, However, it was most likely written by Beatrice Sparks, who was an American therapist and Mormon youth counselor who was known for producing books purporting to be the real diaries of troubled mm-hmm. teenagers. The books deal with topical issues such as drug abuse, Satanism, for some reason. Oh, yeah. Yeah, teenage pregnancy or AIDS and are presented as cautionary tales. So although Sparks presented herself as merely the discoverer and editor of the diaries, records at the U.S. Copyright Office show that she is, in fact, listed as the sole author for all but two of them. <laughs> Um, she also wrote what was known as Jay's Journal about a teen boy who gets into the occult. Yeah. <laughs> I love that so much. Um, after Jay's Journal, Sparks produced many more real diaries, including It Happened to Nancy by an anonymous teenager, which deals with AIDS, Almost Lost, the true story of an anonymous teenager's life on the streets, which is about gang violence, Annie's Baby, the diary of an anonymous pregnant teenager, uh, Treacherous Love, the diary of an anonymous teenager, which is a pupil seduced by the teacher. Kim, colon, empty inside, colon, the diary of an anonymous teenager, which, is about, <laughs> which was about eating disorders. And Finding Katie, the diary of an anonymous a teenager in foster care. You know what teen boys in occults love doing? 
writing, writing diaries. Writing in their diaries. Especially Daily. In, these, in the same voice as the girl in Go Ask Alice. <laughs> it's great. Um, apparently, Paul F. Tompkins has an album uh, that is based entirely on Go Ask Alice uh, <laughs> called Freak Wharf. And the reason why it's called Freak Wharf is because it, like, the Go Ask Alice, when you read it now, you're like, this was written by a adult and but, not just an adult like a lame adult like yeah. a lame adult who thinks that you know cool teens use hello cool language. there kid fellow kids fellow teens yeah and apparently she in in alice the or the the protagonist in that book describes a sanitarium as a freak wharf and he's like who, who says that yeah. so he had he had like a whole comedy album about it oh, wow that was pretty funny uh question number 10 blimey the surname of Dauber was originally given to English workers who used what specific building material? Uh, like mortar? Like uh, like plaster and mortar? Like plaster? Like waddle and daub? Like waddle and like daub. Waddle and the dub. answer is waddle and daub. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> So that was my quiz on Alice's and oh, Cooper's. What a delight. Oh, I'm so glad that Thank I could bring you, more of Alice Cooper's uh, unholy, well, actually very holy, in fact, um, <laughs> life to all of you. So you're welcome. Um, speaking of music, we have a, a little tidbit here. Ooh. You sing it with me? Yeah. People like it when we sing it for some reason. Like when we don't sing it, people are like, oh, you guys they didn't don't sing it. <laughs> You didn't sing the the thing. All right. Well, then let's right. give them what they want. Ready? Give them what they want. One, two, three. Listener submitted trivia. Woo. Um, this comes to us from Carl P. Thank you, Carl. Um, Carl was going back through our um, back catalog, and he said that he had um, recently finished the Billboard episode that we did. And he said, I had music on the brain, and I remembered a YouTube vid I happened to stumble upon a few months back. The main premise is that there is a reasonably hard bottom end to how slow a, a tune can be in beats per minute to still be perceived by humans as being music. Oh, turns out it's about 33 beats per minute. Don't know if that would ever come up at pub quiz, but there you have it. And so when you watch this video, I um, mean, he sent us the link and we'll, and we'll share it um, on social media too, because it's pretty interesting. Yeah. Like when you listen to what 33 beats per minute is, it's like so slow compared to like what you're used to hearing mm -hmm. that like, yeah, if you knock it down one more notch, it's no longer a song. It's just it's, a series of noises. It's just noise. Yeah. But like and then he the same person ends up doing a video on how fast something can be to Ooh. still be music to oh, our ears cool. and it's really really cool so yeah I, I i hadn't ever thought about something like that but very cool so 33 beats per minute is the lowest that a tune can be um and still be like perceived as music as a song to cool us. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you, Carl. Thanks, Carl. Um, yeah, and if you want to submit some listener submitted trivia and then listen to us sing um, with our golden voices. Beautiful. Our melodious. Melodious. Um, I uh, I listened to Bois uh, Bois <laughs> from our guest timbre song mm, twice in a row because I thought that was so funny. And I did it. I'm such a... I'm like, 
such a narcissist. Anyway, uh, if you <laughs> if you want to tell us your listener submitted trivia, you can email us like Carl did uh, at misinfopod at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at misinfopod on Twitter. Um, you can uh, go to our Facebook page, Misinformation, call in a trivia podcast. Um, and you can also just, you know what, visit us on our website, www.misinfopod.com. Uh, you can listen to us on our website and you can also listen to us uh, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Yeah, please rate, review, and subscribe. Tell a friend. Thank you so much to everybody that has left some reviews. Like we periodically check the yeah. iTunes to keep <laughs> our spirits up. Yeah, I yeah. was. Uh, we're having a bad week. We're like, all right. Did anybody say anything nice about us? And you know what, y'all did. Yeah, <laughs> you guys have been overwhelmingly positive for us, and that is very kind because I am not all overwhelmingly positive to myself. <laughs> most of the time. So thank you so much to all well, of you. You who gotta have left. listen to Lizzo's words. I know. I gotta listen to Lizzo's words. Mm, I love Lizzo. We gotta have her on the show. Anyway. <laughs> Let's get Lizzo on the show. Get Lizzo on the line. Yeah. We gotta have Lizzo. She's funny too. Um, anyway. Um, thanks so much for listening, you guys. And if you know Lizzo, please uh, give her our card. Or Alice Cooper. Or Alice Cooper, yes. Or well, Alice he'll Cooper. find us. It's he'll fine. find yeah, He knows. He knows where we are. Hi, Alice. <laughs> She's listening right now. Um, <laughs> thanks so much for listening, guys. <laughs> we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye. The official Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony took place March 14th, 2011, where Cooper was inducted by fellow Hawk... Was inducted by fellow... (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. I'm just really getting into it. Okay. Uh, Where... (laughs) Stop it. All right. Get it together, Joel. Get it together, J.N., doesn't sound as good.